Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 121 called Arden. Today's episode is presented by the phenomenal prenatal called Belly. Belly modern prenatal vitamins are optimized for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. Belly's revolutionary science-based formulation fuels your fertility to help support egg quality, promote hormonal balance, and increase your overall fertility health. To learn more and to check out Belly's vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins, go to bellybaby.com. That's B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. And just for you guys, you get 15% off if you use the code Allie15 at checkout. Again, it's bellybaby.com, code Allie15, A-L-I-1-5 at checkout. Enjoy and thanks, Belly. All right, guys. So today I am talking to my friend Arden Cartret, who is a bereavement doula and trauma support specialist, and she's going to tell us everything she went through to have her baby son, Cameron. So Arden, who you might know on IG as the miscarriage doula, works with women to get through miscarriage and grief, and she really goes there and talks about how it really is, like nobody I've ever met before. So today she's going to tell us all about what she calls her morbidly beautiful miscarriages, how she still really struggles with PTSD, especially when she sees blood and hears about miscarriage. She even has flashbacks still. She's going to also talk about why she calls herself the most fertile, infertile person ever. And she's also going to talk about how pregnancy after loss can be a very scary and miserable time. And it's another thing I feel really strongly about sharing and Arden feels that way as well. So it's a great convo. I adore her and the work that she's doing. And I hope you feel less alone, especially if you've suffered a miscarriage or a loss after listening to this one. So thanks to Arden. And without further ado, this is Arden's infertility story. Hey, Arden. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I want to hear all about your fertility journey. So I always like to start with just, you know, what kind of a, you know, young woman were you? Did you always want to have kids? It's funny because I wrote out like a couple of things to start because I have to like write an outline or I will ramble about my story. Okay. And I wanted to start by saying that I did not always want to have kids. And yeah. I, I think, think you've that said that not to a me. lot of people share that. Yeah. I think I used to feel really insecure about that because every person I talked to, they're like, I've wanted to be a mom since I was a little girl with, with baby dolls and stuff. And I've mm-hmm. just never been that person. I've never been a maternal person. I never thought I would really have kids. And I was born into a family of dysfunction, mm-hmm. a divorced family, probably two people that should not have had kids together. We didn't like grow up saying, I love you and things like that. And so I, that really played a part because I didn't see the whole family dynamic to picture that for myself. I mean, I have family dysfunction for days and my husband, he came from a, like a good size family. Um, he has siblings and they grew up all close to each other and, but they don't have very close relationships. So we kind of had that same thing in common where our families seemed on the outside really 
put together, but there was a lot of dysfunction. And so I didn't really want to have kids until I met him. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have the thought of like, oh, I can create my own family and it can be however I want it to be. And that's really where my desire to be a mom started was after we got married. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about your family. Did you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a brother. He is in the military. He's actually getting married here soon. And Mm -hmm. so I have one brother and then my parents, they were actually born and I was born in New York. And so my family is, Mm -hmm. I always say I'm, I'm a Yankee raised in the South because I was very much raised with like Yankee mentality, but it was in North Carolina that I was really raised. When did you meet your husband and how did you guys get together? Like, did you know right away that you wanted to be together or what happened? I was 19. I was not in a good relationship and I met him. And I think that I went on dates with him to make the person I was in like a not exclusive relationship with jealous Mm -hmm. and it didn't work. So he is three years older than me. He's the same age as the guy that I was in like a weird relationship with. And I don't think that they were friends, but I think I thought like, oh, well, they know each other. So like he'll hear about it. And so I went and met up with Carrie. I messaged him on Facebook the before this was before Tinder was a thing. Mm -hmm. And we started texting and then we went to a party together and then we started hanging out and going on dates. And we did that for probably like three months before we really exclusively started dating. And I think that that really helped us get to know each other. But then we kind of jumped in like our feet first and like moved in together a little less than a year into dating and bought a house a year later. I was married by the time we were 23. Two. I was 22. Babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was 25. I was 22. And we still didn't even talk about kids like seriously. Like we would always kind of say, well, when we have a family and when Mm -hmm. we do this, but it wasn't, we didn't really have a plan. And so we Mm -hmm. went a couple of years without really thinking too much about it. And then we had, well, we had the thought to buy a new car. And so we were looking at bigger cars. And we were like, well, maybe we should start for having kids. And so that's what started the conversation, which is so weird that buying a car led to, right, that let's was make a really, yeah, let's make a really big decision and have a child together. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me what was it about him that, you know, made you think I can start a family and make it different than the situation where, you know, I grew up in. Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, There are actually, so there are a lot of qualities about Carrie that, you know, we talk about this where he has like the good qualities of my dad, which is such a weird thing. But like my dad and I don't have a great relationship, but the things that I saw growing up, you know, when you're a little girl and you're like, oh, I love my dad. I want to be a daddy's girl. And um, so there were really good qualities where my dad was like really hands-on and he did projects and like built things, but he never really finished things. And so I actually... Carrie is very similar to that, to where he's learning how to finish projects instead Mm of being, his dad also did that. I'm rambling on about family dysfunction, but. um, No, that's okay. (laughs) So I saw that Carrie, you know, it's very hands-on and he wanted to be like into sports and he wanted to be a young dad, which was really appealing to me because I had an older dad and my dad was like older to where he was tired and didn't want to do things. And I mm-hmm. associated that with age to where I was like, I want to have kids when I'm younger. That way my partner can go and do sports and not complain about their back hurting. And so I kind of associated <laughs> that together because my dad was 12 years older than my mom and okay. my mom was 24 when she had me. 
Mm-hmm. So that was another thing too, is I always had that age 24 kind of hanging over my head because that was what was normal for my mom to have a child. So I was mm-hmm. like, I have to have a child by the time my mom had a child, or this isn't a normal relationship. Interesting. So I put a lot of pressure on the age 24. Yeah. I can so relate to the not having projects finished because I had a dollhouse that I got as a gift when I was probably like six or seven and they like half assembled it, but like it never got built. And it was like the big joke in my household. It was like every year it was like, let's finish that dollhouse. <laughs> like it was just like, yeah. So, and in retrospect, I'm like, what the fuck? Why did they never yeah. put the dollhouse together? <laughs> no, And that's exactly what I, I'm, I mean. Like uh, I remember growing up, I had like Barbies and my dad was like, I'm going to finish the attic into a bonus room to where you can have like space to make a world for your Barbies or a Barbie dream house or whatever. And it never happened. And so I've always tied myself to, well, like I was supposed to have a playroom and it was never done. I was supposed to have a car whenever I was 16 and I never got a car, which I understand that it's privileged to get a car. And so I had to kind of make my own, I had to finish my own projects because my dad really failed at that. And that was a big thing to me where I saw that Carrie wanted to have those things in his life for his children. And so it was appealing to me to have the opposite of what I had. And that's what Carrie could kind of offer me um, whenever we talk about it. I feel like we could do a whole therapy session on this. Let's talk offline about all of this later. We could really dive deep. All right. But back to your story with Carrie. So, okay. (laughs) You guys are married. And then when did you start to try? We started trying to conceive about two and a half years into marriage whenever we bought the SUV that I'm telling you, it's really just got us going. I'm not sure why. And so I had not been on birth control. I actually have not been on birth control since I was 18 because I found that it made my periods worse. I've always suspected endometriosis, but nobody has ever wanted to look into it or really I've never... People... Doctors have mentioned you probably have endometriosis, but never did anything about it. And I didn't know enough about it to advocate for myself. Okay. So I wasn't on birth control. We were just, I guess, careful the entire time. Like we didn't really, we really weren't that careful. And so I, that's whenever I started thinking like, what if something's wrong? Because we've never even had a pregnancy scare. And that was, you know, looking back, that really was a red flag, which I mean, you would hope that you wouldn't have a pregnancy scare, but it's just... I don't know. We just weren't careful and we probably should have been more alarmed. So we started trying and like actually looking at dates and tracking and things like that. We tried to conceive naturally for about a year and a half before our first pregnancy happened. And during that time, many times I felt like something wasn't right. And it mostly was like, okay, well, even though we're trying, we've never really been the most careful people. And I've still not pregnant. And that was just kind of weird Mm -hmm. and concerning. Yeah. I assumed that I was thinking too much into it. And I would always Google like, how long does it take to get pregnant? And I would see that year mark being the normal timeframe. So I thought, well, maybe it's just normal that I'm not pregnant yet. And we did everything during that year. Like I use lube supplements, like putting my legs in the air, everything. And I didn't Mm -hmm. get pregnant, never had a faint line, didn't even have to squint and think I saw a line. Mm -hmm. So there were many times where I was like, this, something isn't right, but I didn't know enough about it to really look into it. But then you did get pregnant, right? I did. So in May, um, tell me about that. In May, 2018, after about a year and a half of trying, we saw a reproductive endocrinologist for the first time, did all the blood work, found nothing wrong. The only possible explanation was a luteal phase defect, which is for those that don't know, a luteal phase is the time when you ovulate to the end of your cycle. And a 
big component to a good luteal phase is progesterone. And a luteal phase defect is classified under about 12 days long, but it's not really treated until it's under 10 days. And mine was eight to nine days on a good cycle. So because of my tracking for the last year and a half, we saw that my patterns, my luteal phase was short. And so we Um, my doctor said, well, let's do um, ovulation induction medicines like letrozole. And so we had a plan to do letrozole, trigger shot, and monitoring ultrasound and timed intercourse because my husband's um, semen analysis came back perfect. Mm -hmm. So we just thought it was a timing thing and progesterone, and we were going to jump into that. In the middle of, I was in the middle of a cycle when we got that protocol. And so they told me, whenever your period starts, come in, we'll do an ultrasound, we'll see we'll start the medicine and we'll just go from there. And my period was late and I was pissed. I literally thought that my body was just punishing me for like having a plan. I was never really late. I didn't take a pregnancy test because I thought it was a lost hope. And looking back, I was such in denial. Uh, When I was five days late, I started to think like, oh shit, (laughs) I think I might be pregnant. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe I let it go five days late when before that, like I couldn't stop testing before my period showed up. Mm-hmm. But I I was in denial that it could happen naturally at that point. And I took a pregnancy test. I recorded myself for the first time because I had like, everything was just so weird. And I, I looking back, I have no idea why I really recorded myself because I seriously thought it was going to be negative. But now I am glad that I recorded myself because it was the first time I was pregnant. And so mm-hmm. I saw the word pregnant on the digital, lost my- You bought the fancy test. I did. I bought the fancy test. I you fancy girl. <laughs> I, um, I had the easy at home, like cheapy ones. And mm-hmm. I had read so many like Reddit articles where people were saying that they weren't great. And so I splurged, got the digital, never took a digital before and it showed pregnant. And I think I've like to this day, other than my rainbow being born like that, the blissful happiness of seeing a pregnant on a pregnancy test after so long, Nothing yeah. compares to the first pregnancy. Yeah. Just nothing. Yeah. I ran to Walmart because that's the closest thing that we have to where I am in the middle of nowhere. And I got onesies mm-hmm. and I put on our letterboard because it was 2018. So, you know, letterboards mm-hmm. were just getting big. And I right. put, we're finally pregnant. And I laid it out on the bed and put onesies around it and all the tests. And I recorded his reaction. And I didn't even tell him that. I suspected that I was pregnant. We literally just thought that my period was late. So it was really awesome to get to surprise him with the pregnancy because I I didn't think we were going to get to do that. At that point, we had been testing together because around 10 months into trying to conceive, I like lost my mind. I mean, I was just, I felt like I was so crazy that I wasn't getting pregnant and doing all the things. And I was leaving coffee out of my diet and changing everything. And I just felt like I was losing Mm -hmm. myself. And so I went Mm -hmm. down to him. And so we had made a plan from that on that point on to always test together because seeing negative pregnancy tests every month was what was just crushing my mental health. I mean, it was, it sucked. Mm-hmm. He didn't expect me to test without him because we had made a plan to not test alone anymore. Um, so mm-hmm. now I'm glad I did because I did get to surprise him. Right. So did you have Instagram at this point? Is this why you're recording stuff or was it just for your own like posterity or? Um, I did. So my account, was under a different name. So I didn't show my face, but I did do like letterboards and um, like graphic texts and stuff. So I was sharing my infertility journey at that point. Mm-hmm. And it really was just a place for me to bitch and complain about not being pregnant. Um, yeah. 
I was it helpful? Were you connecting with people? So helpful. Some of the people I talked to today and like send baby pictures back and forth with are people that I met all the way back then. So I have a lot of people that I connected with in those early days. Yeah. So this is not judgmental at all, but why did you keep it anonymous? I mean, I get it, but just for people that might be listening, like, were you not wanting, or, or I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what was your yeah. thoughts behind keeping your name out of it? Oh, I was so embarrassed that I was venting about wanting to be pregnant and not being pregnant. Um, I was so embarrassed. And why embarrassed? Of, I have no idea. I felt so much shame that I couldn't get pregnant and I put it all on myself. It wasn't until my first pregnancy when I miscarried, which now I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I had this thought of why do I feel so embarrassed? And I just wanted to like scream from the rooftops that I had been pregnant. And that's when I put my face on the account. And I just felt so tired of feeling that shameful. So I kind of made myself feel uncomfortable to attach my face and my name. And then people like at work and in my personal life started finding me because like other accounts, um, like baby list would share some of my posts and they would see me tagged. And they were like, we didn't even know that you were going through this mm. because I didn't know how to bring it up. And so mm -hmm. I kind of let people find out from finding me and my blog, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that was the right thing to do, but how do you tell people that you're struggling with infertility and loss and not like cry? That's what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to sit there and cry and tell right. people what I was going through. So I just kind of wanted them to find out for themselves. And so I think I didn't want people to know whenever I was um, anonymous. And mm -hmm. then whenever I stopped caring, if people knew I was okay with them finding out. So it, there was just a lot of shame and I put it all on myself. I'm so glad you mentioned that shame thing. Cause I mm -hmm. think that's something that we need to talk about more. And, you know, people out there might be feeling that way and it's okay to feel that way, but you know, obviously it's not your fault. You know, this is medical totally. and you know, we can get into all that too, but all right. So tell me what happened. Obviously we know the, that that did end in a miscarriage. So how, when did you find that out and how did that go down? Yeah. And I do want to say about the, the shame comment, I think a big part of it is being a woman in like a working field where I am really ambitious and I have all of these dreams for myself. And I was afraid if people saw me as like, oh, she wants to be a mom. I thought that they would associate that with like not being ambitious. And again, I probably put that on myself, but I also, I worked around men and things like that. And so I, mm -hmm. I think I put, I didn't want people to find out because I didn't want them to think like, oh, well, Arden's going to go maternity leave and never come back. Mm -hmm. um, that was a big aspect to the shame as well. But yeah. I just wanted to mention that because I know that there are a lot of women that feel that way, um, especially in jobs today. I think it's getting better, but I think that it's, you know, it, society has put that on us for so long. Yeah. Kind of ingrained in us. Agreed. I think it is getting better, but I still feel like there's a long, long way to go. Totally. Um, yeah. And then to answer your question about my first pregnancy, um, I went in for my seven-week ultrasound. It was at my RE's office because I was already a patient there. Even though it was a natural pregnancy, they let me come in for an early an early ultrasound. I had had blood work. Everything was really great. My numbers were high. Went in for the ultrasound and I had a bad feeling. I mean, I had a bad feeling for like the week before my ultrasound, but I thought I'm not a really religious person, but I thought that like, I would not be given this pregnancy for it to be taken away from me. Like this pregnancy is a miracle. And I had that in my head and I just really tried to hang on to that. Um, but going into that appointment, I was really nervous. I mean, I started crying in the waiting room from all of the anxiety. And I told my husband, like, I just don't think that the baby's going to have a heartbeat. 
went in for the scan and they saw a yolk sac at seven weeks, saw a gestational sac that looked like it was measuring seven weeks, but they didn't see a heartbeat. So they said, you know, you could have just implanted late since this is natural and we weren't tracking and we don't know, uh, come back in a week and let's see where you are then. So this started pregnancy limbo, which was agonizing and went back a week later, my gestational sac had grown, but the baby itself was still at the same size. And it was, it was hard to tell what was happening because my gestational sac was growing. And I don't know the term for this. It wasn't a blighted ovum. Apparently it happens with it's a form of mis miscarriage, but they couldn't rule out that I was I had a viable pregnancy or not because my gestational sac was growing. So they said, come back in another week. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we had hope because we saw some growth. We thought maybe they're just growing slower. Yeah. Um, I tried not to Google it because I didn't want to look up things. I had people- Yeah, don't go on Reddit, Arden. <laughs> yeah, Reddit is a dark place. <laughs> um, sharing you know, my journey on Instagram, I did have a lot of people reach out to me saying, that's exactly what happened to me and everything was fine, which instilled more mm-hmm. hope. And I think that as an infertility and loss community, we like to share the good stories and instill hope. But I really needed people to say, that happened to me and I miscarried and here's how you can prepare. And I wish that people would have done that mm-hmm. instead of giving me the hope. But I know that mm-hmm. everybody receives support differently. So we went back a third week. So for three weeks, I was in limbo. And by the time I had my uh, ultrasound three weeks after seven, so it was 10 weeks were supposed to be, I had started bleeding and I thought like, okay, well, this is the end. They said that it definitely was a miscarriage at this point and that the bleeding was, you know, my body starting the miscarriage process. And I was beside myself. Like I could not imagine miscarrying at home when my gestational sac was measuring 10 weeks. So my uterus was the size of a 10 week pregnancy, but I didn't have a 10 week baby in there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was still just a yolk sac. And I look back and I think that maybe the baby had a heartbeat for a couple of days, but I think we missed it because it wasn't Mm -hmm. a blighted ovum. And they kept telling me that, but they, we never saw the heartbeat. And so it was very weird. And, and I always, say, I never know where to share, like how far along I was because it is so confusing to me. I have no idea how far along I was. So I made the appointment to have a D and E, uh, because it was cheaper than a DNC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just going to take painkillers and let them do it in office. And I made the appointment for two days later, then I went home and I miscarried that night. Mm-hmm. So I miscarried right before I could even have the D and E. And it was, the worst experience of my entire life. Um, It was both the worst experience, but also the most like, uh, I don't ever know how to, it it was so horrible, but Mm. I witnessed like my body know what to do. Mm. Um, It did everything naturally. And as horrible as it was, it gave me like an adrenaline rush because Mm. it was like, I can't believe that I just did that. I mean, it was an insane experience. So what can you tell us about it? And I'm sure you don't want to get like too graphic, but this is, there's no such thing as TMI on the show as everyone knows. I'm more than happy to talk about it. I actually wrote a blog post, um, what miscarriage is really like. And I described like the size of things and what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was I, I woke up thinking I had to go to the bathroom because I was still, I had pregnancy hormones. I had to go to the bathroom. 
And whenever I went to the bathroom and pulled down my pants to pee, I dropped one of the sacks. And so whenever you miscarry, there are two sacks that come out at home and um, nobody told me this. So mm-hmm. I thought that that first sack, I was like, oh, this is it. I That was it. That was the miscarriage. And I thought mm-hmm. everything was over. Um, but then I started actually feeling contractions and um, for three hours, bled really heavily, stayed mm-hmm. in the bathroom, lost clots the size of like lemons is what I tell people. And mm-hmm. like the there were a couple the size of softballs. Like these are all the details that I really wish somebody would have told yes. me. Because yes. Because I thought like, this can't be normal. Like, why would a doctor let me do this at home if right. this is the size of things that are coming out? Right. And um, not to get too graphic, but again, just in the in sharing, what did you do? Like, was everything going into the toilet? Did you feel like you had to save part of it to like be biopsied or like, what was your thought process? It all went in the toilet and I have no problem. I I know that, you know, it's, it's hard to hear these things, but I like to remind people whenever I talk to them, like, it's okay if you miscarry in the bathroom and it goes in the toilet and you don't take it out. Like it's, I didn't even think about taking it out of the toilet. I didn't know it was an option to get it tested. The thought crossed my mind of, oh my God, my baby is in the toilet, but I, um, I, it, it sounds, it sounds so horrible and I felt really bad about it for a while, but I thought I don't want to traumatize myself more by looking at it. So I didn't look. And for me, that was the best decision because I was already so traumatized from the blood and the feelings of passing the tissue. And, um, so I did, I, I flushed and I kind of flushed with the, the mindset of like, close your eyes and don't look at it, Mm -hmm. which sounds it's that it sounds like such a bad mom moment. But, no, um, it doesn't. I, I, I get it. I just I couldn't I couldn't look. Yeah. So I I miscarried on the toilet for the mm-hmm. entire three hours. Oh my god. Okay. So then what? How do you grieve that process? Oh my gosh. I was. I mean, I was a wreck. I felt. Um, again, I felt also really. I felt oddly proud of my body that it at least miscarried on its own because I didn't think I could get pregnant on my own. So here I was with a natural pregnancy and then I naturally miscarried. And that was such a confusing thing because for a year and a half, I thought my body was so broken and empty and pointless. And so Mm -hmm. it, I always describe it as morbidly beautiful. And I use that term every time I talk about my first miscarriage, because it was the weirdest experience of my entire life. And it's been three and a half years, mm-hmm. almost four years. Mm-hmm. And um, I still really struggle with the PTSD of like the seeing the blood for the first time and the feeling of that miscarriage. So mm-hmm. we talked before we hit record about moving. And so mm-hmm. that's a really big reason why I'm excited to move because we're in a one bedroom home right now. And mm-hmm. I've had to use that bathroom every day for the last four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I can't tell you a time where I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom since then that I haven't thought about it. And I would love to not think about it. Like I would love to not yeah. have flashbacks to all of that that happened that night. Right. That's so important to talk about. So are you see, have you seen therapists and stuff too to help you with all of this? I have. Um, yeah. I've been in therapy since my first miscarriage. Yeah. Um, I started really diving into therapy whenever I was pregnant with my rainbow because I found that pregnancy was really triggering. I had a lot of like, you know, cramping and and there was some spotting and baby movements and things like that. Things I didn't think that could trigger trauma from my miscarriages really mm-hmm. 
really affected me. Um, I always thought the pregnancy was the solution, not the trigger. Yeah, that's yes. Let's we'll get into that as we continue yeah, on. Sorry, but, I know I'm jumping. No, forward. that's okay. Okay, so first, so this happens. Whew, PTSD for mm-hmm. real, and then how long before you guys, you know, kind of got back on track and like started again? Um, my husband wanted to try and conceive right away, and he wanted to try and conceive naturally because that was a natural pregnancy. He had this hope that it would happen again. I did not. I thought it was just a um, a lucky but unlucky thing that happened. Mm-hmm. So we tried to conceive naturally for four cycles. And then my compromise was I'll try and conceive naturally for four cycles. If we don't get pregnant by the fourth cycle, we're doing the letrozole and um, trigger shot and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we went ahead with that four months later. And I say that I am the most fertile, infertile person ever because I got pregnant on the first cycle with letrozole and I was very lucky to get pregnant on the first cycle. That kind of confirmed like, okay, well, fixing my luteal phase fixes my infertility is what it felt like. So with that pregnancy, I was really disconnected. I knew that I couldn't get excited until the first ultrasound because that's the point I didn't get past with my first pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt really scared didn't feel any excitement or joy. I mean, it was a a miserable time and that really sucks because that's the memory of my second pregnancy. We went in at six weeks for the first ultrasound and saw the same thing that we saw with the first baby, except for this time, the word blighted ovum was mentioned. Okay, They said, come back in a week and let's see where we are then. And for that week, I mean, I was just so disconnected. I don't think I took my prenatal vitamins. I drank a lot of coffee. Like I was just like, it's over. There's no Mm. point in me. Mm -hmm even having hope. Went back at seven weeks and everything looked exactly the same and shrunk a little so that indicated that miscarriage was, you know, going to happen soon. I, without thinking, literally without thinking at all, I said, just give me the Cytotech. I've done this once before. I can do it again. Didn't have the money to do a DNC if I was going to have to do more fertility treatment and then fertility testing. What is the, sorry to interrupt, but what is like the cost difference? Do you know off the top? Like- just out of curiosity, because I never had to do either of those. My all my miscarriages were, I happened naturally. So just for yeah. someone who's listening, I'm curious: is it like thousands yeah. of dollars or hundreds or? Well, I think it depends on your insurance. So my deductible was really high; it was ten thousand dollars. So I had to pay really high out of pocket uh, mm-hmm. premiums, and a DNC like going to the hospital, being put under, was going to cost me about five or six thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, okay. and. They they gave me the option with the first pregnancy. I mentioned an in-office D&E, which would have cost me about $600. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so shitty that, that they even charge so for that because you're it's not so getting your baby at the end. Like, it's like, it's like you're giving birth, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's, I feel like that's a procedure that should just be part of the deal. Like, just, I'm so sorry you have to go through this. It's on us, you know? Yeah. I mean, no, totally. And I always tell people it cost me less money to bring home a baby than it did to not bring home a baby, which is insane to me. Insane. I just got the chills. Mm -hmm. There's your pull quote (laughs) (laughs) for real. (laughs) Um, So it would have been $600 for the D&E and my medicine was maybe $7 for Mm -hmm. the prescription. Like it was very cheap. And you know, the way it was explained to me was I would take the medication and it would kind of quote unquote, flush out the pregnancy. And 
it would happen very similar to my first miscarriage and it would be over. And so I did that because I, I was like, well, I'm still standing after the first one. I can do this again. And I took the medication. I was like, I took it on a Saturday at 3 PM. I set an alarm because I wanted to have it done by Monday. So I could go back to work. I didn't want, I didn't want miscarriage to take one more thing from me um, Mm -hmm. because with my first miscarriage, I took a a week and a half off of work and I could have taken longer, but I didn't. With this one, I was like, I can take off work. My bosses were really understanding. They knew what I was going through, but I didn't want to have to take off work because of miscarriage. So I was like, I'm going to miscarry over the weekend. I'll be back on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I took the Cytotech. It took about six to eight hours. And I thought that the worst was over. Then I started recovery and I was just numb. I mean, the entire pregnancy, I was just looking back. I was definitely depressed. I mean, I I was not, I was not okay. And I just kind of kept going, like, I just got to keep going forward. Just got to get a baby. Mm -hmm. And um, I really should have cared for myself a little bit more. But three days after taking the Cytotec, I started to have really heavy bleeding and I was at work. So I went home and then it just like, I mean, an excuse if if like we've already talked about the size of blood clots, but like the blood was pouring out of me Mm. um, by 8 p.m. that day. And I was sitting on the toilet and I said to Carrie, like, something isn't right. Like I miscarried three days ago and it looks like I'm miscarrying now Mm -hmm. and I don't really know what's going on. And so he said, should we go to the hospital? And I've never gone to the ER before. Like I've never had to make that decision. And I was like, I think we... Need to go to the hospital, and he's like, "Should we call an ambulance?" Because we live uh, about forty minutes away from the hospital, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "No." By the time you know, we should just drive there. So he drove me, and on the way there, I mean, I was passing softball-sized blood clots, oh my and like, I didn't bring extra clothes. I didn't have a pad. I had nothing. I blood was all over my clothes, and so I thought I was traumatized after my first loss. It was almost like my second loss was like, "We can beat that," and we went to the hospital. I walk in, I tell them I miscarried three days ago. People are looking at me like, okay, why are you here? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm literally bleeding so much right now. I can't even explain it to you. Scary. Um, Were you scared? I, I oddly was like calm. I wasn't crying. I was, I'm really, I'm oddly really good in a medical crisis. It's like Mm -hmm. other crises I'm really horrible at and I freeze up, but, um, I do have some medical training, which I think makes me Mm -hmm. calm in a medical crisis, but, um, So I was very calm. I was telling them what was wrong. And I think that because I was calm, they weren't taking me as seriously, which I can Mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm. Um, So they just, they put me in a room and offered me Tylenol because I was in so much pain. Like I was doubling over. I was sweating. I was like, not okay. And it was very clear that I wasn't okay, even though I was somewhat calm. And I continued to pass softball-sized clots in the toilet in the ER, and nobody offered me a pad. I kept asking if I could have pads from labor and delivery, and they told me that they didn't have any. And I was just like, nobody nobody asked to see the blood. I didn't have a vaginal exam for six hours. I did have a vaginal ultrasound, and whenever I took – this is like always the the most traumatizing part of this entire thing, but I took off my pants for the vaginal ultrasound. And I said to them, you know, what do you want me to do? Because whenever I take off my pants, there's going to be blood everywhere. And I don't want to get blood all over your room. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, it's fine. Kind of like as if I were on my period at the gyno and they're just like, no, sit on the pad. It's totally fine. Oh God. Um, 
So I took off my pants and I'm telling you like blood splattered on the floor, on my shoes, on my leg, on the chair. And I just started crying. Like that was the first time that I really started crying. And I was like, how do I clean this up? Like, what do I do? I can't even bend over. And a technician came in and she was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I, I just kept saying, I'm so sorry and crying. And she cleaned it up. I'm just sitting there sobbing. And it was probably the nicest interaction I had my entire hospital visit. Um, was from that radiologist. And so she helped me get cleaned up. I still had blood all over my clothes. Like got back to the room. They gave me morphine. This was probably hour four into my ER stay after arguing with them to give me morphine because they didn't think that morphine was appropriate for what I was experiencing. And finally, after six hours, the OB resident came in and was like, we have to do a DNC. You've lost too much blood. Mm. So I had to have a DNC anyway. And then I went home got a nice big bill for, I think it was $8,000 from that six hour visit. in the ER. Yeah. And then I started kind of the recovery process and I didn't want to try and conceive for at least six months. I was really like, I need some time. I need Mm -hmm. some time to deal with the trauma that I've been through. Um, But my husband really wanted to try and conceive. So we compromised on three months of taking a break. And during the three months I did like the reproductive, um, the recurrent pregnancy loss testing. I saw a specialist for a second opinion on endometriosis. I, I, I mean, I did so many things and mm-hmm. nothing, nothing indicated a problem. Wow. Which was so annoying. It's so frustrating. So how are you mm-hmm. guys relationship wise during this time? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it was really rough because I was I was grieving so hard, um, but I was grieving more the trauma that I had been through than I was the baby. And my husband grieved more with our first pregnancy. So he didn't get attached to the second pregnancy either. But the difference is, is I was somewhat attached because my body was going through it. So it was more of grieving what has happened to me instead of grieving the actual loss of a baby. I don't know if that even makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just more of what I was going through, I was very depressed. I mean, I was negative. I was hard to be around. And I remember him, you know, not enjoying my company because mm-hmm. I was so down in the dumps, so to say. Um, so we didn't see eye to eye that entire grief process. And he really wanted to jump back into trying to conceive. And I was like, I can't go through a third miscarriage. Like I considered not trying to conceive anymore mm-hmm. because I was like, I can't do this again. Obviously, you know, you have... Cameron now. So tell me how, what happened after that? Yeah. So after we had our testing and nothing came back wrong, we, my doctor chalked it up to bad luck and said that it happens. It could have been my egg quality since my luteal phase is so short. Um, So during my three or four month break between trying to conceive again, I focused on um, non-toxic living and like switching all of my products to non-toxic, like makeup and skincare and things like that. I like cut out a lot of things out of my diet, just processed foods. And I tried to eat better and focus on like healthier meals. It wasn't really dieting or anything. And we did another cycle of the letrozole and I did see a difference. I, so in my first cycle, I only had one egg or one follicle in my right ovary. And in the second cycle, I had one in my right and one in my left and then a bunch of little ones, um, which I didn't have the first time. And so I had two follicles to work with instead of one, which was more promising. And so we went ahead with the cycle, everything 
was pretty much the same. Like I, we had sex when we were told to, did the trigger mm-hmm. shot. We added progesterone and I got pregnant and everything was different about that pregnancy from the very beginning. Um, I had more hope, like I was a little less negative, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that I had been through so much that I was like, okay, well, I've gotten through that. Like I might not be okay, but I'm living, like I'm alive and, mm-hmm. and telling my story and, you know, people... I'll be okay no matter what happens Um, and kind of went into it with that mindset. And then I adapted some tools and stuff. Um, Like I started goal tracking where I would make like little small goals and that would really help me. I journaled, got into a couple of affirmations. Like I just really tried so hard to enjoy my pregnancy Mm -hmm. the best that I could, even if it ended the way that my first two did. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we went in for the first ultrasound at seven weeks, which we had never gotten past our first two pregnancies. And there was this little heartbeat and I had never seen the flicker before. It was the most amazing feeling. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, gave me a lot of hope too. But then I, I still was scared, like all throughout pregnancy. I'm pretty sure I cried to Carrie that I thought I was miscarrying like eight times, even yeah. though there was no blood. I just was so terrified. Um, pregnancy after loss is like, I mean, that was so much harder than any of my miscarriages were to me. It was just a mind game every single day. I remember there was like a point when I was 16 weeks pregnant and I was crying over the fear of miscarrying. And my husband was like, why are you crying? Like we have a Doppler, everything is fine. And I said, because now if I miscarry, I have to give birth to him. Like I have to go through a traumatic event again. I don't have the option of a DNC. And I remember that being really scary to me. Hmm. Hmm. I get it. Yep. That's a really, really good point. So there's like it that limbo like there period. There was a safe zone, right? Because you're in limbo. Like you're, you know, I think people mm-hmm. who've suffered loss, as so many of us have, you are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're always waiting for the bottom to fall out and to like mm-hmm. find yourself on the floor sobbing and punching the ground. You know, like we're just so used to that. Right. Exactly. So how did you? get through the rest of it? Like what, what happened then? Oh my gosh. I cried a lot. I always tell people because people ask me how I got through pregnancy after loss. And the truth is, is I cried a lot. I was openly afraid. I communicated with Carrie whenever I had really hard days. I had a Doppler that I listened to his heartbeat like two times a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked to my doctor about it. I had her show me how to use it. I know that that doesn't help everyone, but it did help me a lot. Mm-hmm. How often were and you I doing mean, the was, Doppler? two times a day. (laughs) (laughs) I would have done like every hour on the hour. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It just, it really helped me start my day and end my day with no anxiety, which was really nice. Um, Mm -hmm. So that worked for me. I paid for extra ultrasounds. You know, I found what worked and I just kind of continued doing it. And then towards the end of my pregnancy, and, and this is something I wasn't prepared for, I started to feel a lot of anxiety about reaching 40 weeks. For some reason, I had it in my head that I could not go further then 40 weeks pregnant, I didn't trust my body to keep him safe over full term. So like even at 37 weeks, I was a little like they say you're full term at 37 weeks. So why would my baby stay in me is my thought process. Like Mm -hmm. my body cannot be trusted. So I kind of freaked out over that. And I um, elected for an induction at 39 weeks. And that was the best decision I made in my pregnancy because I felt like I had some control over the situation. I also was really nervous for birth because of seeing blood. Blood is 
to this day, a very big trigger for me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be at home whenever I saw the blood because I didn't want the bleeding to start in the same bathroom. I should also add, I I am diagnosed with OCD. So I I get very obsessive with Mm -hmm. these particular moments Mm -hmm. or thoughts, and then I can't let them go. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really played a part in my birth plan. Yeah. I recently had my friend Amber Bailey on the show, Will Hike for Donuts, you might know her as on Instagram. And we talked a lot about mental Mm -hmm. health and her OCD and how it was exacerbated by infertility, you know, Mm -hmm. something that she had kind of had under control and then, you know, flare ups and all that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about the mental health aspect of it for you? Yeah, I was diagnosed with OCD um, during the infertility part of my journey because I just... I had such a terrible flare up where it wasn't even related. Like my flare up wasn't related to infertility, but my lack of control in my fertility is what like caused me to spiral. And my husband actually pointed out like things are not like you're just doing things that you don't normally do. I'd be obsessed over just insane small details and I couldn't let them go. It would ruin my day. Like I would be late for work over the thought of, for example, just like that way I don't sound so crazy. I was terrified of my home catching on fire while I was at work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where I got that idea from, but I Mm -hmm. attached myself to it. And I panicked every day to where I had to get a camera for my house Mm -hmm. to make sure that my house wasn't burned down. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point to where I would be late for work because I thought I'd left the coffee maker on, or I thought that I left like a heater on or something like that. And so I would go back home and my husband seeing me do this was like, something isn't right. Let's go and talk to your doctor. And I was explaining this to her and she said, you know, that does sound like OCD. Let's just kind of keep our eye on it and write down what you think triggers you. And um, by the time I, it was about a month before my first pregnancy that I actually started on medication and started doing therapy mm-hmm. because it just kind of spiraled out of control. And throughout my journey, I have had to increase my dosage many times. Mm-hmm. I uh, think I'm like finally at a dosage that levels me out to some capacity, but dude, it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> it was really rough for a while. Um, infertility and loss really affected my OCD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like day to day now? Now I feel okay. I think that I think that motherhood also <laughs> triggers a lot of things and I think it's just now I'm I'm living with OCD. Like even though I'm treated it's not 100% gone. I'm learning coping mechanisms and things like that, but I am more leveled out now mm-hmm. than I used to be, which is nice, but I'm always like I have tried different medications since he was born. Mhm. So like I've, I've played around with it to try and find a good medium. Okay. Okay. So just to get my numbers straight. So you had the two devastating losses and then third time that was the pregnancy with Cameron, correct? Correct. Okay. So can we talk about when you finally got to the end and gave birth to your incredible son? Yeah, I, so I was induced pretty easy labor. Like I actually really enjoyed my labor experience, which I feel like I'm very lucky to be able to say that. I think the induction was a big part of that. And when he was born, like I was not prepared for like how hard birthing a child would be because Mm -hmm. I really thought that my journey to get there would be the hard part. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, you know, even with an epidural, like pushing and all of that stuff, it was just, 
it was a lot. It was, I mean, it was, it was very intense. It kind of reminded me of my past trauma with how intense I remember like contractions were with miscarriage. And it really validated my miscarriages for me because I said, or I thought to myself, like, I've been here before I've had contractions before. This feels really similar. I pushed for two hours, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, whenever he was born, I refused to open my eyes, which I now through therapy have realized that this was like my trauma coming in again. Wow. I refused to open my eyes because he wasn't crying and I didn't want to see him not alive. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And like, I never really realized what I did in that moment of trying to protect myself. I think um, of like connecting with him or, or something. I just, I was still so sure that something was going to be wrong, even mm-hmm. though he was being born and mm-hmm. he was in my arms. Like they put him on my chest and I kept my eyes closed and they were like, open your eyes, look at your son. And I said, can you tell me that he's alive? Tell me his stats. Like what's his heart yeah. beating at? Like I wanted them to tell me that he was perfectly healthy before I opened my eyes. And I don't know why I did that. Like I, I definitely think it had to do with what I had been through. Yes. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think for sure mm-hmm. it has. So then you obviously did at some point open your eyes, right? How was, tell me about that moment. <laughs> Yes. So I You're did like, no, I've never eyes. seen him. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I probably like realistically had my eyes closed for like a full minute. Like it wasn't, it's not like I was just sitting there like, no, I refused to open my eyes. It was just like, I was so afraid. I had to kind of like talk myself into opening my eyes. I also really did not want to see my placenta. <laughs> mm. Like I was so terrified of seeing my placenta. So that was another layer mm-hmm. um, where I was like, can you like, make sure that I don't see that. But once I saw him, I mean, I was very lucky to feel instant connection. It wasn't like a moment, like I thought it was going to be where you're just like locked in and there's like doves flying around you and stuff. But like, (laughs) I felt like I knew him for longer than that moment. Like I, I just felt like even though he had just got there, I felt like he had always been here and it was such a weird feeling. It was just like home. If that makes sense. That's so, oh my God, so great. So how old is Cameron now? He's 15 months old. Okay. So tell me about Miscarriage Doula and what you're doing with all of that, the podcast and Clubhouse. So whenever my son was born, I realized that it brought up so much grief. I mean, I was really struggling. Um, Like my first Mother's Day was when he was maybe two months old and I was crying all day on Mother's Day over like the sadness that I felt for what I lost. And Mm. that really caused a lot of confusion with me. And it caused a lot of confusion with my husband because he was like, why are you so upset? Like we have a baby and Mm -hmm. he's perfect. And it just, I finally now could picture all the things that I lost out on with the first two pregnancies. And so I was Mm -hmm. very thankful for Cameron, but I was still really sad for what I lost. And this caused me to kind of dive into that grief. And up until this point, I had been open on Instagram and people reached out to me all the time, asking me questions about how to get through miscarriage and what to expect. And I would tell them the nitty gritty details and just prepare them the way nobody prepared me pretty much. And then I came across sisters and loss on Instagram and Erica was offering a doula course for birth and bereavement doula. And I was like, maybe I'm supposed to do this. Mm. And I thought like, maybe I can help women through birth of their rainbow babies because I was not prepared for like how triggering it would be mm-hmm. and started to kind of look into that. And I did the course, did the work. And then through doing the work, I healed a lot. Like 
it was very healing to take the course and be certified. But I also realized like, I don't feel drawn to helping women through like live birth. Like that's not what I do. It's not what I'm passionate about. And I realized like nobody really like offers to help through miscarriage. Like you have all of this support through pregnancy that is available to you, rather it's easily accessible or not. And then postpartum, you know, we could have better care, but there is care available, mm-hmm. but miscarriage, like it, I felt so forgotten and I felt so confused and I didn't know my next steps. I, I wish somebody could have coached me through it pretty much. So I like couldn't sleep one night and I was like, what am I going to do as a doula? I had to kind of like figure out what my doula business would be. And I got so excited because I just thought like, I want to be a miscarriage doula. And then I wanted to only refer to miscarriage as first trimester birth. And I actually started my business um, by doing that, but nobody could find me because nobody calls it first trimester birth. Mm. So I was like, how can I make sure that I can offer affordable services to women who are going through miscarriage? And I was like, I'm just going to be the miscarriage doula. That way when people search for miscarriage support, you know, it's easier to find And so that's kind of how it was born. And I started offering one-on-one sessions where a lot of people find me before they miscarry and I walk them through what to expect and how to prepare. Some people find me afterwards where I talk to them about, you know, what the next weeks look like and what trying again can look like. And I help women through pregnancy after loss. And I do it all for like, I offer like 60 minute sessions for $35. I have free group sessions with other women who are currently going through loss or who have been through loss. So I make it very affordable because it's really important to me that people don't have another medical bill because right. I am somebody with tons of medical bills and it right. sucks to get a miscarriage related bill. Completely. Um, I also have the miscarriage doula fund where people have donated mm-hmm. money so I can offer services to those who can't afford the services or, you know, those that don't want to pay for a miscarriage session and stuff like that. Um, so I have been really mm-hmm. fortunate. I think I've offered 23 women services for free from that fund. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So that's really great. Yeah. That's so and then awesome. I started... Yeah. And then I started the podcast because I actually helped um, Shelly Metling, who is the host of Life After Miscarriage. I did her social media. Mm-hmm. And um, when she was ready to kind of you know, step away from podcasting, she asked if I would continue it, but I didn't want to continue it under the same name. I wanted her thing to be her thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I thought about doing a podcast, but if I had done a podcast, it would have been what she was doing. And I didn't, you know, she was doing it perfectly. So then we kind of arranged for me to take over when she was done. And I started the podcast under the same name as my business, the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. Mm -hmm. And on Mondays, I do a series called Life After Miscarriage, where I talk with a lost mom who tells me their story of Mm -hmm. miscarriage and what life afterwards looks like. And then on Thursdays, I talk with somebody else about a miscarriage or infertility related topic. Like I've covered progesterone, mental health. Mm -hmm. I've talked to some of my favorite people in the community who have written books. Mm -hmm. So it's been a really cool thing just to have conversations with people Mm -hmm. surrounding the topic. Yeah. I know you and I have that commonality where it's like, we've got to share these stories and there's so many stories Mm -hmm. out there. I mean, the amount of people who are on my list, you know, that I've already talked to and then the list that I want to talk to like, it's, it just goes on and on and on. So I'm so glad that you're out there doing it too, from a different, slightly different angle, but I love what you're doing, Arden. You're so awesome. I'm so glad we've become friends. Me Thank too. you for sharing your story. Do you, let's let's wrap it up with 
you know, if somebody is listening and, you know, they might be new to this community, maybe they just stumbled across this podcast, you know, maybe had just had a first miscarriage. What would you say to somebody who's kind of feeling really lost right now? I think that the advice that I wish I could have given myself was to, instead of focusing on all the things that have happened and like the what ifs, I wish I would have focused like day to day, just looked at what I was going through and just kind of helped myself through that. Like given myself the time to grieve in that moment and just not think, well, what if I'm grieving for two weeks? Or what if I have a a third, a fourth, a fifth miscarriage? I wish that I would have just taken my fertility journey a day at a time. I think that's the best advice I can really give because there's no solution. Like there's no way to not feel the pain of miscarriage. There's no way to just go through it without feeling grief. You're going to feel the pain and it's going to be hard, but just taking it a day at a time is the best thing that you can do for yourself. That way you're not overwhelmed by the grief. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And Arden, thank you again. Definitely check her out, guys, at the Miscarriage Doula on Instagram. She's doing amazing things. And I also wanted to remind you, if you are looking for extra support or community, definitely check us out at Fertility Rally on Instagram or fertilityrally.com. We are a community. We have content. We have curated events. We have weekly support groups. Monday nights, it's pregnancy and motherhood after infertility group. And Wednesday night, it's infertility support group. We have created a family that is just the greatest. I mean, everybody is just there to lift each other up and help each other out and get through this shitty, shitty time. So I urge you to check it out. We are actually open the first week of July for seven days. So come check us out, join our membership, DM me or email me at infertilifestories at gmail. If you have any questions, we are here for you guys. And we're just here to make this better and help you feel less alone. So check us out. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks.